0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 18, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. My first guest will be... Shirley Grindle, local campaign finance activist extraordinaire. To hear her tell it, you understand what I mean by that. Then in advance of her appearance tonight at the Beckman Center is NASA astronaut and American chemist, Dr. Tracy Caldwell Dyson. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome, everybody, back to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Shirley Grindle, Orange County campaign reform activist, campaign finance reform activist. She completed an aeronautical engineering degree from UCLA in 1956, the only female engineer in that graduating class. Shirley Grindle received professional accolades in the aerospace field through her work at Plasmodyne Corporation in Santa Ana and Space General Corporation in El Monte. She gained a very good vantage point on the workings of government while serving on the Orange County Planning Commission from 1973 to 1976, two years of which she was the first female to serve as chair. She was the author of the Orange County Planning uh, Orange County Finance Reform Ordinance known as Tin Cup time is now clean up politics. The Tin Cup was adopted by initiative in December 1978. The update was ratified by 85 count that 85% of Orange County voters in 1990. Any and practically all any and all oversight in this county we owe to her. In her own words, as she invokes a hobby that she savors, she would rather play softball than hardball. Welcome to the show, Shirley Grindle.
1: Well, thank you. This anxious, anxious to uh, give you a few comments.
0: Oh, give us any and all, and no filters allowed, Shirley Grindle. Well, <laughs> this very important charge that you took up so many years ago, what prompted your involvement?
1: Uh, During my four-year tenure on the Orange County Planning Commission, I uh, learned how decisions really get made, and they're generally made behind the scenes by lobbyist influence. And at that time, um, there were no contribution limits on uh, campaign contributions. And so a certain lobbyist um, who are no longer with us at this time, um, they literally funded some of the supervisors' campaigns. I remember one prominent lobbyist loaned a uh, supervisor $50,000 uh, to run for office. At that time, campaigns were costing around that much. Uh, so that gave this lobbyist tremendous influence. Uh, So anyway, after four years on the commission, and also I heard many from many small companies, like small planning firms, uh, geology firms, uh, civil engineering firms, that they were really being held up by supervisors and their aides for campaign contributions. This was back in the 70s, and at that time, uh... supervisors were holding two or three fundraisers a year to raise money for reelections. and i decided it's time something get done and uh, i'm not the only one there were many other organizations that were pushing the board to enact some form of campaign uh... limits and uh... the board would fiddle around for about four years and did nothing and that's when I hit the scene and I resigned from the planning commission and established a, a group of 35 people and we went out, we wrote in a, a, an ordinance and we went out and did the county's first initiative, the first countywide initiative. A lot of hard work, but because we qualified that measure for the ballot, the board of supervisors cannot um, weaken that ordinance or do away with it without voter approval.
0: Well, I think I, I don't want to, you to dismiss the importance of your own singular role. It's your longevity and your your major profile in this like that's where i first I first knew about you because of the editorials that you were contributing in the the local press about uh, backsliding on uh, some of these kinds of advances in campaign finance reform so uh, and I think everybody can hear quite loudly and clearly how how discreet that Shirley Grindle is in trying to maintain this kind of policy this this operating procedure she's not she she won't name names she's she's not backing either party she has uh she she's simply trying to clean up this process so uh, then i I'd, I'd like to find out there's there's barriers now recurrent barriers toward reforming campaign finance laws and stepping up the oversight what what barriers are those currently
1: well uh, let me just speak to the local issue Uh, the the biggest barrier in this county is the current board of supervisors uh, who are very very afraid of setting up some kind of a commission that would investigate and enforce uh, violations of the county's ordinance currently uh, the ordinance requires that the district attorney investigate and enforce violations. But in all the 16 years or so of uh, Mr. Rakakis' regime, he has never investigated or enforced a violation until recently when he did investigate um, – contributions, illegal contributions, to uh, Harry Sidhu, who was an Anaheim candidate. Uh, there's probably some political reasons why Mr. Rakakis decided to um, go after an uh, individual who wasn't probably going to hurt his future election if, um, well, that gets into some politics. But anyway, um, I have suggested to the board, because I will not be here forever, and there is currently no mechanism set up in this county to monitor and enforce uh, the county's campaign ordinance. And I think the board owes it to the voters to establish an enforcement mechanism. This was a voter-approved measure, and they owe this to the voters to enforce it.
0: For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Shirley Grindle. Primary volunteer watchdog in Orange County campaign finance law for, for decades now here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming at, uh, we'll call it voting booths, streaming at, uh, board of supervisor lobbies, uh, all around the world on the web at kuci.org. Well, um, the commission, um, the idea is, is really important. So, um, you were successful in those earlier rounds, previous rounds, of voter-approved initiatives, uh, can we look forward to uh, an effort to give it another go if the County Board of Supervisors will not uh, adopt an ordinance on their own?
1: Well, if I were 20 years younger, uh, I would tell this board where to go, <laughs> and I would go out and run another initiative, and I would establish, and I'm sure the voters would are all in favor the majority of the voters would very much like to see uh... the county's Tim cup ordinance continue and be enforced and i would run an initiative that would set up a commission that would monitor enforce uh... and enforce the um, county's ordinance um, now i'm not twenty years younger and so i'm not going to do that i don't know what's going to happen It depends, uh, probably, who's going to be uh, the next district attorney. Uh, The previous district attorney, Mike Capizzi, prior to Tony Rakakis, did have uh, a special group within the district attorney's office that did investigate and enforce violations of the county's ordinance. But Tony Rakakis campaigned, one of his statements was he was not going to investigate and enforce. Uh, violations of campaign laws. And up until recently, he, he has not done so. One good example would have been um, the previous sheriff, Mike Corona. Right. Mike, Mike Corona violated the county's ordinance big time. And by taking three times the amount uh, over the contribution limit from one of his contributors. And I asked him to return the money. He refused to do so. And uh, why should he? Um, He knew that the DA was not going to go after him, and so he got away with that. I had filed a complaint with uh, Tony Rakakis on that matter and never got a response from him. Well, years later, um, Mike Corona is in a trial, and this all came out. I believe, had Tony done his job when I filed that complaint, that maybe... Mike Corona would not have gone as far off the deep end as he did. He might not be in jail today.
2: Wow.
0: Well, you're talking about uh, the incumbent district attorney, his disposition toward campaign finance laws and uh, ordinances and their enforcement. We know that he is now facing challenges like he hadn't in previous elections. Do you generally understand, Shirley Grindle, that there? could be a much more uh, fertile discussion of campaign finance reform with those that are beginning to throw their hats into the ring.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, When uh, the candidates come forth, um, I'm sure that one of the issues I will be asking them is their position on enforcing the local ordinance. Okay. Now, I will tell you that I think the ultimate solution is to establish a – three-member commission that would simply be there to deal with violators of the ordinance that refuse to correct most of the violations of the county's ordinance are people uh, are instances where they exceed the contribution limit. I catch most of those and I notify them and the excess amount is returned to the contributor and that's the end of it. You don't need a commission to deal with that. You could have an employee at the county uh, assigned to do what I do, which is monitor this stuff. And you do this
0: all volunteer. This is just Shirley Grindle doing this.
1: Uh, You know, by volunteering, nobody pays me, so nobody can fire me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of a nice position to be in. And it's not a full-time job, far, far from being a full-time job. It's only panic time right around elections but anyway uh, a county employee someone like uh someone from red star voters could take over the monitoring that i do uh let's call that person the executive director of a commission and 90 percent of the violations can be taken care of uh, by the executive director and a um candidate who's willing to correct the violation. It's only those that don't uh, correct their violation that would have to go before a commission and be uh, judged uh, innocent or guilty, whatever, and fined administratively. Nobody's going to go to jail. That's what the commission would handle. But and, I just wanted to interject, though. Wouldn't...
0: Many of these transgressions go away because of the existence of a formalized oversight.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. The chances are that you would get recalcitrant violators who didn't want to correct their violation with a commission um, where public uh, meetings can be held. They don't want to go there. They don't want that publicity. So it's a great deterrent.
0: Right, right.
1: Now, I, I want to say something. Please. I, I'm going to name some names. I wish you would. I've been doing this since 1978, and, and all these years, there have only been three violators that, had there been a commission, would have ended up in front of the commission because they refused to correct their violations. Mike Corona, Kermit Marsh, and Chris Norby.
0: Oh, and Chris Norby's still active in politics in Orange County. Oh, yeah, county. he
1: does not like contribution limits. Uh, let's say Chris Norby is trying to be active in politics. Uh, he tried very hard to get one of the appointments here in the county. I forget what it was for, but uh, he did not get it. Uh, that was to replace John Williams, I think.
0: Okay, wow. So, so and I, Ken Marsh, you'll have to refresh my memory whether he's still uh, in play now.
1: Kermit Marsh, I believe, was a former councilman in, I think it was Westminster, not sure of that. But he decided to run for county supervisor and uh, um, he immediately ran into me because I monitor all the races for county supervisor. And uh, (laughs) well, he didn't win and he just decided to quit filing his reports. And this went on for several years. He would not he had money in his account, and he just quit filing reports. You cannot do that. That's a state law. So, of course, uh, he received many phone calls from me, from the registrar voters, and finally we just turned him over to the FPPC. I have to tell you, uh, this guy's an attorney. you think he would know better. But the FPPC, the Let's say, Political Practices Commission, Yes. Find him thirty five thousand dollars. He could have hired God for his treasurer for that. <laughs> what a what a stupid thing for him to do, just because he wouldn't file the reports and it went on for years.
0: Well, Shirley Grindle, you have the uh, tailwind here the the spring of two thousand eight Orange County grand jury finding that this this. Commission, this campaign county practices commission should be uh, should be created. So with that, uh, it's not that long ago, and and uh, campaign finance reform certainly gets lots of attention on uh, many levels. As we see campaign contributions open up and hemorrhaging their way into the electoral process, Uh, wouldn't that have been a sufficient sort of a, a? Momentum created for this effort to get an initiative, uh, qualified for a state or a countywide ballot for for voter approval of creating the commission.
1: Well, you know uh, the problem is that the um, the board members that are down there now they're really afraid of appointing a commission. They they come up with all these crazy reasons, but you know. All the major counties in California, San Diego, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego, I don't know whether I said that one. Yes. Uh, They all have ethics commissions, and one of the charges of that commission is to enforce their local campaign laws. They're working fine. Some of these commissions have been in existence for close to 20 years, and they're working fine. It it really is the solution, but this board is very afraid to do that. They're the only major county in California that hasn't done this. And personally, uh, I don't think they have a leg to stand on. Uh, Now, the grand jury report, I think it went a little overboard about the corrupt county. I think there are a lot of things that need to be changed, but... I come from the era of the late sixties and the seventies when I tell you this county was really corrupt i mean we what was it we had almost thirty one indictments in three years wow. uh, political indictments um, I mean we were known as the dirty tricks capital of california yeah. um, and that's you know we came in a uh, tin cup the uh, uh ordinance came about right on the end of the Watergate
0: era mm-hmm. right um
1: so any i i wish this board would wake up and smell the roses uh quit listening to their campaign consultants and their lobbyists uh who i think that's where the pressure is coming from on the board to not set up a commission uh, I think a lot of these guys, they run the campaigns, they raise the money, and I think they're very afraid of a commission finding some of their dirty tricks.
0: So it's become a—it's really a serious catch-22 of trying to reform where the vested interests really have a difficulty yes. uh, yeah. changing practices. And so at Shirley Grindle is making... Folks, if you're, if it's too, if it's that subtle to you, she's making an appeal for someone to, that she could be mentoring who could take up this, this charge. And the charge would be, For it to become a public record with with these kinds of practices institutionalized, the commission and adopting a a stricter ordinance that we would move from the private discussions surely has one-on-one with any transgressor of the actual ordinance it's set up, from those private discussions to a public record. It's sunlight on campaign uh, contributions made in Orange County and so there's that there there's the there's the challenge to any listener now or listening on later on the podcast to um, take up a really important function that Shirley has been willing to do since essentially since the 70s so it's a it's just major and I guess maybe you can just make a pitch as we close here Shirley Grindle, make a pitch about how satisfying it is to clean up
1: well it it's it It is satisfying, and I have to remain very neutral. I can't play favorites. But in regard to your last statement, I would really, the solution to this really is to run a countywide initiative to establish this commission. I would not trust anything that the Board of Supervisors were to write. See, they have the ability. They could write um, an ordinance to s- establish a commission, and they could put it on the ballot. It would probably be so full of loopholes, it wouldn't work. Okay. I wouldn't trust anything they put on the ballot.
0: So that defines where what the task is at hand. Then, so it's yeah. a, a a privately advanced uh, petition, and it would be changing the the charter. That's what um, the effect would be. The, char- well, the county it charter. It would be
1: uh, yes. It would add a. Uh, ordinance. Um, it would alter 10-Cup. We would have to uh, make some changes in the 10-Cup ordinance and adopt an, uh, another ordinance to establish this commission.
0: Well, fine. That's, that is the charge, everybody. Uh, I, I challenge listeners who take their own local politics seriously, especially, I want to say, directing this uh, thought to any students who are registered to vote in Orange County listening here at KUCI, uh, that this, this is an, not only important, but I, I wanted Shirley to, to ratify that it's a really satisfying, it wasn't thankless for you at all. I think it's probably kind of juicy sometimes.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it gives me a purpose in my old age. <laughs> uh, well, I, at
0: any age, somebody I think would get purpose from this. So yeah. I, I, I want to thank Shirley Grindle, who is kind enough to give us time today. She's the primary volunteer watchdog in Orange County campaign finance here on Escalator. Shirley Grindle, thank you for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity and
0: all of your service. I laud you.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: We are going to be back after a a brief station break, and we're going to hear from NASA astronaut Tracy Colville-Dyson here on KUCI. Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is NASA astronaut Dr. Tracy Caldwell-Dyson, who will be giving a talk at UCI's Beckman Center here in Irvine, about which I'll give more details later. Native to Southern California, Tracy earned her undergraduate degree in chemistry at Cal State Fullerton University, her Ph.D. at the University of California, Davis, and completed post-doctorate research here at UCI with Barbara Finlayson-Pitts and John Heminger. When selected by NASA in 1998, she had the distinction of being the first appointment to have been born after Apollo 11. She flew on the Endeavour mission in August 2007, then after her launch in a Soyuz flight capsule in April 2010, she completed a 176-day mission aboard the International Space Station. Tracy can carry a conversation in both Russian and in sign language, is the lead vocalist in the all-astronaut band, Max Q. She carries quite a nice tune at zero and first and one gravity one. She's married to naval aviator husband George Dyson and resides primarily in Houston, Texas. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Tracy Caldwell Dyson.
2: Claudia, thank you so much for that gracious introduction.
0: Please. It is certainly a treat to have you on. Well, certainly all of we civilians, have a multitude of questions for a rarefied profession such as yours. I'll try to make mine steer clear of what will likely be covered at the Beckman Center Talk. So why don't we start with how you heard that you were accepted into the astronaut corps when you were at UCI back in 1998.
2: Oh, that was an exciting day for me. Uh, I was in my office. I shared a small room with another postdoc and I received a phone call and it was from the Back then, the chief of the astronaut office, Ken Cockrell, and he, uh, I had heard through other sources that if the chief of the office called you, that it was uh, a sign that you made it in. So I was quite astonished when I heard his voice. And um, he tried to make small talk with me on the telephone <laughs> and asking me about my truck and and um, how everything was going here in California. And... Um, and then he asked me if I would be, uh, if I was interested in, in coming to work at NASA as an astronaut. And I, I started hyperventilating, and I couldn't finish the conversation. I, um, I really, I was, I was astonished, and um, I was, uh, I was in shock that that I was getting this opportunity. And so he said calmly, like any naval avi- aviator would. He said, "You know, how about uh, how about I give you call right back?" And <laughs> and so he had to, he had to give me a few minutes, and and it was right after that I hung up the phone, and then I went screaming through the hallway all the way up to the the floor where our laboratory was and the other researchers in my group, and I just let it all go and yelled, I made it, I made it, I made it. And as we were all celebrating and trying to catch our breath, I remembered, oh, no, he, he's calling. i got to go back to the phone <laughs> right well, they, <laughs> to
0: accept the job. <laughs> they knew it was good news because you weren't flushing your eyeballs from some kind of chemical burn. Exactly,
2: yeah. Well, they, they knew that it had to have been something good regarding NASA, which we were all waiting to hear uh, the news from
0: so he, you took the call just a, a few moments later when you returned to that floor
2: absolutely and and the funny part about that was after he um, after he gave me all of the details that I needed to know after accepting the position, he then said, "Well oh, oh, there's one more thing, Tracy oh? uh, in twenty four hours there'll be a press release that will go out with your name and the rest of your classmates' names, and until then we'd like you to limit the news to just your immediate family and My jaw dropped because I had just Ran through the the chemistry building, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> "I made it! I made it! I made it!" And then all my my uh, um, the rest of the group knew about it. And um, he could sense something was was wrong. And he said, uh, "I think it were a little late, <laughs> but I got the job still." So well, they
0: must have a contingency plan because it's sort of like getting notification like maybe a Nobel laureate or whatever. People can't. How can you suppress something that 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 terrific?
2: Exactly. You know, I think they, I think they somewhat expect it, but right. they have to give that little disclaimer so that uh, um, they know what you, what you, what you were supposed to do.
0: <laughs> or, you, or you'd have to kill everybody on the fourth floor. Or yeah, something exactly. Like that, something <laughs> like
2: that. Well, um, then,
0: what I'd like to find out is tell, tell us all about how you trained for this. Your running, swimming, and weights regimen, all of that, while you were doing some top-notch science there.
2: You mean training for a mission, or just? In general, being an astronaut
0: training at, at the beginning while you're still working on your postdoc here.
2: Oh, yeah. So um, I knew that I knew. Well, I was interested in in uh, fitness and staying in shape anyway. But I knew that if I if I were to make it, that a lot of my job depended on my um, physical health and and strength. And so I uh, was no stranger to 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 running. But um, I took it upon myself to ride my bike uh, to and from work every day, and that was no less than an eight-mile bike ride um, in in one direction. So um, it was uh, a daily routine, and then I also um, uh, lifted weights there um, at the gym and uh, did quite a bit of running, especially down at the beach on weekends when I had the time. Well, they remember
0: that you were doing some phenomenal things that weighting yourself down in the swimming pool and all kinds of things that not not your typical uh workout regimen calls for.
2: Yeah, you, there's uh, you know, um uh, water resistance is a wonderful thing, but if you could add more weight to it, <laughs> it uh it makes it all the better. So I would um I had a a rope and and um a harness and could uh uh, swim against the resistance of, of that system and and just get better fitness out of it without having to use too much of the pool
0: well i know you you 'll talk a great deal more about uh, the training regimen at the, the at the space center uh, what i'm i'm interested in sort of stepping out of that a little bit about uh, what was happening. Perhaps after the training, we we have here. I don't know if you had a chance to stop by at some point. UCI has worked on a prototype rowing machine for the space station, and I don't know at what point it was going to be transferred up to the space station. I don't think I'm not sure that it's up there. Have you seen um, some something of that prototype anywhere around uh, at Houston or uh, in Southern California?
2: You know, I have not but actually. It,
0: but I remember that it has a nice feature of working on the the muscles on the balls of your feet since i understand that uh, you're all famous with your atrophied muscles that post uh how many months at the space station in zero gravity that you're you just tip over you don't have any muscles in your feet anymore Tell well me.
2: if you weren't to do any exercise at all then yes that would definitely be the case and we've learned so much from the beginning stages of our space station program to today in in terms of that that we have uh, improved the exercise equipment on board and and placed so much emphasis on that part of our well-being up there that it's actually producing a lot of great science in the the process of making us more healthy for our return. But yes, if we weren't lifting weights or um, passively running on our treadmill, then um, the the balls of our feet would not um, get much of a workout or the sensation that it requires to, to hold yourself stable once you're back here on Earth and all of your weight then is placed back on... The, the, ves-
0: the vestibular function that you talk about.
2: Yeah, oh, that's a completely different story. Um, there's really not much um, that you can do on orbit uh, during those six months to kind of prepare yourself for return of or- uh return to Earth where your vestibular system is concerned. But it does seem to be a, um, a phenomenon that uh, the more... Um, uh, uh, the more exposure you have to that environment, uh, the the more readily your body adapts to it. So, I was much more uh, adapted uh, to both uh, microgravity as well as coming back to Earth on my second flight as okay. I was on my first.
0: Wow. Well, and I and when you did return, uh, how I mean, since the bone density and muscle muscle tone and muscle mass are all heavily affected, were were you able to gain back? You're uh, in—I um, don't know—in a, in a number of fronts, chemically, physiologically, uh, and, and anatomically. Though, were you able to get your your bone density back to uh, what a thirty-something, forty-something would uh, expect to have?
2: Absolutely. In fact, I was fortunate that I didn't lose any bone at all, which isn't typical, uh, wow. but certainly a testament to the equipment that we have on board now. We have a device called um ARED which is an acronym for Advanced Resistive Exercise Device and it is a basically a universal gym system um that um that we have on orbit that allows us to do everything from squats to bench press to calf raises and all of the um all of the major parts of our body that are more prone to bone loss are those areas which our trainers target for as exercises and so I did I was very faithful with the regimen that they gave me and as a result, when I came back, I had uh, no bone loss, very, very insignificant bone loss. And it took me no time at all to come back up to what I was before my flight.
0: Well, that was good news for you as well as for NASA then.
2: Yes, absolutely. And and I think that the more um, – and there are also um, the scientists that are um, using that device um, in their studies – are helping us to develop better exercise regiments to, to help um, everybody uh, to to come home with those kind of results.
0: Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and uh, in modular units all over the world, listening uh, on the web at org. My guest is Dr. Tracy Caldwell-Dyson, NASA astronaut and International Space Station veteran who will be Speaking at the Beckman Center at in Irvine, we're talking about her her uh, physique and how it has was affected in microgravity and how were you, I guess you had to train to to be under constant vigilance and so what was that like that you're you were talking about in some other interviews uh, psychologists are checking in with you and your your uh, your bodies. Uh, Physique is being monitored. What's that like? 176 days of being monitored.
2: Oh well, it starts well before you launch into space. I'll tell you that much. Okay, sure. um sure. Yeah, you're you're being monitored um, of during your training and even in the post flight um, portion of your mission. So you kind of just get used to it after a while. Um, you during your entire um, training regiment, you're you're often in class with and you're one person, but you have maybe five six other people standing around um either watching how you're training or or your your mentality your your well-being etc mm-hmm, etc mm-hmm. et so you it kind of just um goes in the background of your of your consciousness and you you just do your job anyway and and you you're so well prepared that um those are not no longer a distraction uh to you so
0: i see well, um, and one uh, other questions I was checking out uh, around uh, were, uh, what fascinated me was sit- practices like acupuncture, acupressure. Are some of those things becoming more incorporated to help maintain the astronauts' physical and mental condition?
2: I wouldn't say as a rule it is. Um, many of us um, enjoy those uh, treatments, those modalities for um, improving our health, or or um, you know, just uh, keeping us in balance, um, but it's certainly not something that is, uh, uh, I would say, instituted in our um, in our uh, healthcare in in the astronaut corps.
0: No, it's not. Okay, so, so um, then I would like to know um, to the extent that you can say, shifting away from the uh, physical, mental um, c- conditioning and monitoring, to the extent you can tell us, what portion. Of your mission would be considered classified, and uh, or could you break down what's um, what's yeah classified versus sort of the public domain that NASA can always put up on their website?
2: Well, I would say, uh, gosh, the majority—I want to say ninety ninety-nine percent of what I do on orbit um, as an astronaut aboard the space station is all um, public domain. Uh, there are, you know, my my private. Life up there, where I have um, private family conferences, private medical conferences, all those things are just me and my family, or me and my docs, but um, and nobody invited to that. And and I would say that uh, you know our our crew quarters, our bedrooms, are kind of off limits from from the webcam, the live the live right. shots from ISS, but. For most part there's really nothing these days um, with our missions that's considered classified back uh, in the earlier days of the shuttle missions where we did missions for DoD There were definitely classified portions of those missions but today um, it's very uh, it's very transparent to to the public what we 're doing in fact, we invite the public in to the extent that we set up a camera in our home <laughs> unlike you do here um, and we invite we invite the the public the tax paying public to to come on board and to see what um, what their hard-earned money is uh, being used for.
0: Well, it does seem apparent that all the the um, astronaut corps is being asked to be emissaries, both uh, in flight as well as uh, afterward, to keep giving NASA the kind of uh, promotional tools to keep keep the funding. And that that is actually one of the questions I wanted to know is um, uh, whether um, you have. Uh, your emissarial functions have changed as the like things like the federal funding uh funds have been sequestered uh, in the last uh, budgetary cycle.
2: Uh not really my role really hasn't changed much it's really to um i mean the 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 details change a little bit about what you um what you talk about and what kind of questions you answer but for the most part um i'm there to to uh to relay to the public, to describe for the public and our and our decision-makers, our researchers, everybody, what it's like to be in space. Uh, there's so few of us right. in, in, in um, relation to, to the population of the world that can actually answer that question. And that question really hasn't changed, uh, except that there's more a, of an emphasis today on doing science, which is um, a relief to me since that's my background. Right. Um, and, um... You know, we're 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 learning more about how to fly in space, how to live in space, but how to work and do um, profitable things—not just in a monetary sense, but for our well-being, for um, benefiting humankind—to to, to um, profitable in terms of 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 using our money money wisely to get from here to outside, um, you know, to to orbits beyond that of low Earth, um, just to 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 bring. Those details of how we can do that better um, is really uh, I think my role when I go out to the public and speak
0: and i 'm um, noticing when you 're talking about a low earth orbit then I, then the role that you see NASA having from here on is, it's the or the international space station it's as, is what portion do you attribute it to being uh, maintenance of planet Earth versus leapfrogging? uh space exploration beyond.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a, a a thoughtful question because I think it's both and to what degree one or the other I, I don't know that I could say but you know there's there's so much to be learned about our earth from that vantage point not just being able to to be that high in altitude and be able to look back at the earth but to um to be in microgravity and have that unique environment and, and the circumstances that we have to live up there, which, which drive technologies, drive these developments that then go back on into, into our life here on Earth. Um, that's just as important, um, especially right now, as we're learning how to get off of the surface of the Earth into space. We, we, we can't do it as readily yet as we do as, um, with air travel, which everyone can enjoy. So we really need to to do this in order to look back at our own planet and say, how can we make it better? But, you know, there's exploration in the hearts of humans, regardless of what country you come from. And in order to learn more about this single planet that we inhabit, we do need to get beyond um, our own atmosphere and to go explore those things. But we need to do it timely and we need to do it, you know, with a lot of smarts. And that's why... The ISS, the International Space Station, where it is today, is in the perfect location as we begin to learn more about how our bodies and materials and our technologies um, behave in this environment before we commit ourselves to going further than we're ready to go right now
0: right and uh, there are there's the subsequent international space station launches launches to the station are as they're contemplated there that Scott Kelly's going to be up there for he'll be one of the first to be up there for a full year so it's uh, are you and are you scheduled to go back up to the space station
2: uh right now not that i know of i'm busy um at the moment um uh, supporting the space station and teaching our uh, our newer astronauts um uh, the 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 ropes, so that they can be prepared to go up there for their mission. And I'm also getting to spend some time with my husband,
0: right? Get reacquainted. Mm-hmm. So, and what? So, you're going back to some of your earlier roles of speaking from the space from the from the ground control to the uh, the space station uh, mission specialists.
2: I I do some of that, but I actually right now are work, am working more behind the scenes, and so I've been spending a couple of years since my return from my mission. Uh, basically organizing the space station. Mm-hmm. I, I led a team of people from NASA uh, to um, to improve the stowage situation and the, car- the transfer of cargo from these commercial ships uh, to the space station, kind of a logistics yes. uh, sort of project. But because I lived there, I was able to uh, uh, direct the teams and, and in a more efficient way to... Um, to handle the, the large amounts of co- cargo that were coming on board the space station with the limited amount of room that we had to keep it, and then just the flow of of keeping uh, supplies uh, coming in and then um, being uh, removed from the space station, whether as trash or as returned items to the ground. And then we um, have a new set of uh, astronauts that have been selected, astronaut candidates as they're called right now, yes. and they're going through all sorts of elementary um, phases of their training and so I'm there to help them uh, right now namely with uh spacewalking uh they're all getting geared up to do that general training and um, I'm just helping to bring the experience I had from orbit uh into uh their training at the neutral buoyancy lab yeah. in Houston
0: well with your 22 plus hours uh, in the in the spacewalking you um, it's called the extravehicular activity the evas that you you will have a lot to tell them. And i i um so we'll go back to that um i'm curious how um, you're mediating a lot of feelings when you realized there was a hazard going down in, uh, that was in, uh, let's see, not August, it um, yeah. in August. And uh you, in fact, you were the one that detected that malfunction at the very, be- at the very beginning of that. So you're, you're sort of reconciling the kind of, uh, I guess you're managing the dread because you're an astronaut and you're trained, but you're also dealing with a, a like a lifetime opportunity for the, um uh, the extravehicular activity the spacewalk so uh, that that must have been a lot and you take all that training to what uh, you can talk to men and women uh, astronaut candidates about uh, preparing
2: yeah that's uh, you know it's something that um you know we never wish for bad things to happen on the space station and uh, no. but we do you know we we live on a on a um, on a mechanical system and so things are bound to break um, and um, we we spend so much of our time in training learning about the systems that make up the space station and how to respond to to most uh emergencies and and we don 't train every um, you know response to every problem on board so when when something does happen on board, such as when our pump module failed it was um, it was nice to see the training for myself it was nice to see the training kick in mm-hmm. and, and uh, to have responded. Um, as uh As quickly as I could, and then to work with the teams on the ground and um what what of course doesn't get um, talked about very much is what was going on in the space station uh for the um for the remaining you know eight or nine hours from the time that happened to the to the morning when most people were waking up and and having their first cup of coffee. our crew on board were um, working uh diligently with the ground team to put the space station in a safe configuration because uh, with one of our cooling loops down we had to transfer power and systems over to the other Mm -hmm. channel and what that meant for us on board was doing a lot of rotations of racks and getting into the bowels of the space station to plug things in and to move our precious scientific samples from one deep freezer to another and we were up all night doing that but then to to then at the end of that effort (sighs) realize that our job still um, wasn't over. We had to get ready for these spacewalks, and then go out and actually uh, remove and replace this pump. Um, was yet another huge fulfillment of of uh, a dream come true for for me personally, as well as my my crewmates who were involved. That you know, you never you never wish for things you know drastic to happen, but when they do, and and you can put all of your training to good use. Then um, it sure is—it's uh, very gratifying and and uh, very motivating.
0: I must say, though, after having put in a whole night of, of moving everything around, and then you've got an eight—you don't know it's going to be eight hours, but an eight-hour spacewalk after that. So, oh, imagine the necessary uh, part of drilling to, so that you can do these things instinctively.
2: Yes, well, I have to admit that there was a—I think we had um, two days at least between the time that the pump failed and then the time we went out the door for the first spacewalk. But, um, so we did have a little bit of rest, um, but still, your adrenaline's pumping, and, and all you can think about is the fact that if that other pump decides to go, then <laughs> you're you you've got no cooling to the space station kind of situation, and so um you you no longer are um, thinking about being tired or hungry or anything like that. you're just looking to get the job done
0: surviving. Wow, that's phenomenal. Well, I guess what I'd like to do is close with it's a really a a very expansive question. Since your appointment nearly 16 years ago, Tracy, what changes in the space program? Stand out for you the most, whether it's collaborating with increasingly more countries that are contracting with the International Space Station. It's is there the, the privatization, the repertoire of activities that are undertaken, the, the Chinese going it alone. What kinds of things stand out for you?
2: Okay, you pretty much uh, said it all there. I think when I became an astronaut, when I was a when I was a postdoc, and I had uh, at Irvine. And I had submitted my application to NASA and was at that time waiting to hear from them. I I, I never thought about um, the shuttle going away. I mean, I knew that I knew that the space station was being built, it was preparing to be launched, and that that was really what the new um, the new cast of astronauts would be uh, focused on. But I don't think that I never I ever really thought much about our shuttle, our precious. Shuttle system ever going away, and so I think that as I as I progressed in my career, having to say goodbye to, to our shuttles, um, that was a that was a, a, a mo- monumental um, part of what I thought was going to be a long career. Having to say goodbye um, was rather emotional and surprising. And then I think, uh, yes, definitely the 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 realization of of um, our world cooperation, our international partners. That's watching that development throughout my career has been a really um motivating part of the job it was so difficult in the beginning as as it is with any you know new roommate basically uh-huh. um but as you as you learn um how to uh how to respect one another and to work w- with one another it it just becomes a very um necess- you begin to realize how necessary that is in in the grand scheme of this uh, endeavor we're calling space exploration that we do it together as a planet, not just a, a country. And then certainly, uh, most recently, it's been the commercialization of space and NASA's role in that. Um, you know, we we always talk about going to moon and Mars, um, and I guess that was the the necessary part about saying goodbye to the shuttle was being able to m- for NASA to move on. Uh, out of low Earth orbit to go do those um, those harder things and then bring in um, welcoming the commercial companies to learn what we know and to keep uh, keep the efforts going here in low earth orbit to to do the things that we can here closer to home
0: well I guess w- one last question um that was that global one is you were talking about. Training uh, astronaut candidates, and you're involved with the the uh, the freight that can come and go uh, between the launches at, to the, and from from back from the the International Space Station. So, what advice do you give a uh, a a new uh, mission specialist of what they can pack in the way of discretionary items?
2: Oh, if, if they were going to the space station, right? Well, I would say pack light because you're not going to need much and you're not going to have a whole lot of time to enjoy it because <laughs> you're going to be working your tail off. Um, I think that it's always important to bring something warm and cozy that reminds you of home, definitely pictures of your loved ones, but um, uh, nothing nothing bulky, maybe a book or a journal. Um, but uh, you definitely don't need a whole lot because the experience that you have up there um, is, uh, is such a... Um, a lasting it makes such a lasting imprint on you that um there's there's little that you can bring up there to um to, to take the place of that. That will certainly the experience, the floating, the the um the, the job that you're doing, the looking out the um the window at the grandeur of our yes. planet, all those kinds of things um really uh take more of your senses uh than anything that you could have brought from home to In the in the way of comfort food, (laughs) so to speak.
0: Right. Well, I know there's more. All my listeners have more questions, and they're frustrated they couldn't have asked them themselves. And I'm I know there will be plenty of opportunity. uh, Well, maybe not at the at the Beckman Center. I know with other talks that you've given, there's. Everybody wants to see that loop one more time of the of uh, some of the images from the cupola that you've taken and all that. So um, I, I, it's there's there's a lot to ask. So I thank you to all for your time, Tracy, uh, on Ask a Leader today.
2: Claudia, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate your interest and in, in, uh, in this opportunity.
0: It's been a joy. This was Tracy Caldwell Dyson. NASA astronaut who will be talking later on at the Beckman Center at UC Irvine. Well, that concludes the um, interview that I did yesterday on uh, Ask a Leader with Tracy Caldwell Dyson. I want to let you know that this is a wonderful opportunity. It's going to be tonight at the Beckman Center. And it will start at seven o'clock. But um, the, since this event, it's free and open to the public. The uh, auditorium seating is on a first come, first served basis. So if seven o'clock is when things start. So you want to come earlier if you want to make sure you get a seat. There will be overflow rooms available with live streaming video. For additional information, you can contact Melissa Sweet at nine four nine eight two four. To six two eight or her email is m sweet that 's m s w e e t at uCI it 's a wonderful opportunity for Orange county community, including uh, school age kiddos from the age of ten to see to see this astronaut Tracy Dyson as well as there will be a NASA mobile driven to explore exhibit that 'll be on hand it 's featuring a touchable moon rock not the toxic kind that's this one's ready for ready for touching and interactive mission displays for everyone to enjoy Talk with you next week, everyone. Thank you for joining us.
2: Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Lock your Soyuz hatch and
0: put your
2: helmet on.